0: Amen. It is a great joy to be back together this week and coming now to our time where we sit under the authority of God's Word. It's His Word alone that is a solid ground. His Word is a rock. and His Word is true and it keeps us and it instructs us and it presses us and calls us to be conformed to the image of Christ and to make war for the truth. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the second epistle of John. Second John, this is just a one-chapter letter, and we will begin, I think, over the course of just a couple weeks, looking at the 13 verses that comprise this letter together. Really, um, 2nd and 3rd John are closely linked to 1st John, and I think in a way we'd be selling 1st John short if we didn't immediately follow up the study of that first epistle by looking at 2nd and 3rd John, and they really need to be considered together, the 2nd and 3rd epistles, because they play on each other. Our interpretation of 2nd John will be helped by understanding some of what's going on in 3rd John and vice versa. So we will look at these two over the course of the next few weeks. We'll have a couple weeks interspersed in there when we get up to and around the Easter holiday. We're going to spend a couple Sundays, Lord willing, in Isaiah 53. But for the next four weeks or so, outside of that, we'll be in 2nd and 3rd John. So being a shorter epistle, I want to look at this under a single sermon heading. That'll take, as I said, a couple weeks. So 2nd John, I say chapter 1. Your Bible may not have the chapter number in there, but I like to use the chapter number. 2nd John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, and the title is Biblical Division and Hostility. And if you're familiar with this letter at all, that might be a bit of a a jarring title because John doesn't mention hostility. He doesn't really even mention division. But he's writing about how believers need to be divided and to be separated from those who are false. He's writing how Christians need not even show Christian biblical hospitality to those who are false. And so the word hostility especially comes in here, borrowing from Webster's Dictionary, the definition where where Webster uses there the idea of opposition or resistance in thought or principle. So that's what we mean when I say hostility. I wanted to give something that's a, a positive charge, something that we can take and act on it. It's not just that we need to not be hospitable, but we need to act in opposition. We need to resist those who are false. The idea is that we are separate from the world and in opposition to the world. So I'm to read all of this short letter together. It's 13 verses, but we will give our attention to Holy Scripture. If you're willing and able to stand through the 13 verses, I'd invite you to stand with me now as we give attention to God's Holy Word. This Word is inerrant, and it's inspired. This is God speaking to us, His people, so may we give it our full attention. The Lord says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, And not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received the commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, Not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house And do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and to speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now would you join me, and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy and glorious is your name. May your glory be displayed in all the earth. May it be displayed and may it be made known to all people. May you receive, O God, the honor and glory and praise that is due your great and mighty name. Thank you, Lord, for your divine electing love. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen sinners to call to yourself. Thank you that you have made a way to reconcile sinners to yourself through the blood of the cross of Christ. Thank you that the Son willingly, even joyfully, humbled himself, took on the form of a bondservant. was made in the likeness of men. Thank you that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What a glorious salvation, unmerited, undeserved, yet reserved, guarded, and kept by Christ for us to be fully revealed on the last day. Lord, may we look forward to that day when we see you face to face. May we strive. May we run. Toward that last day. May we expend ourselves from day to day, as long as you give us breath, as long as you give us strength. May we strive and toil and labor to build your kingdom, not our own, but your kingdom that will endure forever. Lord, I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. For it's your Spirit who gives us strength to walk in light of the commands that you give us. It's your Spirit who helps us and makes us to understand the word that you have revealed through the prophets and the apostles that you have preserved throughout the ages. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in and through your people today. Lord, each one of us here is under the authority of your word. Each one of us must submit to the truth. Each one of us then needs the help of your Holy Spirit to hear, to receive, and to apply your word. Pray for a great outpouring of the Spirit among your people today. Not in some charismatic way, but in the way where your Spirit moves through your truth where your truth is planted in our hearts and the Spirit causes it to bear fruit. Lord, may we bear much fruit to the glory of your name. Lord, would you build us up individually, but especially corporately a people for your possession, a people for your glory, would you build us up to the point of maturity, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in no good thing, Lord, we know that that only happens in eternity, we also know that as long as we remain, that you are working and completing that work in us. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Lord, your word is truth. Would you bind our hearts to Christ? Would you transform our hearts, conforming us to the image of your beloved Son? Lord, I pray that you would receive the honor and the glory and the praise. From our time together today, you are worthy. For pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So There is much to see here, both on the surface and in the undercurrents of what John is writing, what he has written in 1 John, and what he will write in 3 John. And in way of introduction, really the first point today is just an introduction to kind of set the scene of, of 2 John, but in way of introduction, I want to begin by defining the audience of this letter. He says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. One compelling interpretation uh, of who the lady and the, the chosen elect lady and her children are, uh, I think especially maybe common to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who hold to this view of imagery and allegory and they they interpret the scriptures in light of that but but one interpretation here is that the lady then is the church and the children are the people who make up the church. you look at the end of the letter verse 13 and compare that to first Peter 5 verse 13 you'll see a similarity in second John the children of your chosen sister greet you First Peter 5 thirteen, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Peter was talking about the church in Babylon, the exiled church. So so there's a sense in which you could see and connect dots and say, okay, maybe John is writing to a church and he's specifically speaking of the children being the people who make up the church, but I don't think that's the best interpretation. I think there are some practical and reasonable things that we can consider to see that John is actually writing to a lady and about her children. Firstly, this letter was written really in the same time frame as 1 John, somewhere around 80, 90 to 95, really in that exact same time of John's ministry. It was while he was in Ephesus, before he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And with that in mind, why would John either immediately before or immediately after writing this longer letter of 1 John, why would he write a letter really with the same topics but with with much less um, depth, much less detail? Why would he write the longer letter and then follow that up with, with something much shorter and less expansive? If you recall, the themes really are the same talked about brotherly love, talked about holy living, standing in the truth, and resisting falsehood. Those themes are picked up again in Second John, but with much less specificity. And so it doesn't make sense that who would write to the same or similar group and not go into the same level of detail. He could have. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's certainly possible, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. A second clue that we can consider, and you'll see this more fully over the next few weeks when we get into Third John, is Second and Third John are very congruent. They're they're almost concentric, and Third John is clearly written to a single individual. Therefore, it would make sense that if these letters are very similar, the greetings and the conclusions are really almost identical, and even the body, even the main theme. Is very similar. And so it makes sense. It would stand to reason that 2 John, like 3rd John, is written to an individual. Third clue, I think, is that um, in in 2 John and in 3 John, the tone of his writing is very similar. The the tone and the themes running throughout both of those letters uh, appear to be very similar. That he's addressing the same type of audience. Ultimately, in 2nd and 3rd John, John addresses the idea of Christian hospitality and and those to whom we ought to show hospitality and those to whom we should not show hospitality. And, And so it seems that maybe there was a struggle with this chosen elect lady. She is a saint. John makes that clear, but it appears that there was a struggle in that she wanted to rightly apply the truth. She wanted to rightly practice hospitality, and she didn't know how or where to draw the lines. However, Gaius, on the other hand, the recipient of third John, John commends him. He drew the lines well. He, he was contrasted really against someone who did not love the truth, who loved himself and always wanted to be first. And so just with all this congruence, it, it seems to make sense that 2 John and 3 John have the same type of audience. And as you think about this elect lady and you think about Gaius who received 3 John, one, one thing that's important for us to understand is that instruction in the Christian life, instruction within the church is not one size fits all. So one of the challenges of preaching is that the way that, we, the way that we communicate the word can often differ from one situation to the next. The way, especially privately, in counseling types of situations, in discipling relationships, the way that we use and apply the word can often be a little bit different. The truth always remains the same. It doesn't change how we interpret the the text, but how we take the word and apply it to an individual can often change. Some people need to be pushed and prodded. They need a fire lit under them so they will go and run and strive. Some saints need to be encouraged. Some saints need gentle patience to build them up and press them, press them on because they have a tender conscience and they are struggling to know whether or not they are in the faith. We need to use wisdom and discernment to rightly apply and appropriately apply the word in every circumstance. And John does that perfectly in these two epistles, not because John was perfect, but because he was a holy man carried about by the Holy Spirit, and we can learn from how he writes. So what's the purpose of this letter? It's intensely personal. It is very pastoral in its encouragement. He gives a very practical warning. John's desire and this remains true whether you want to believe that this was written to a church or to an individual, John's desire is that the person or the people who receive this letter stand firmly upon the truth. That is the great goal of his instruction. In days of difficulty, in days of confusion, when the church is attacked and maligned, when the truth is attacked and maligned, when false teachers, false prophets, false converts, rise up. We must know the need to stand firm in the truth, but it goes further than just knowing that we have the need for it. We need to have the backbone to stand upon the truth. If you listen to the stories of people like the Marian martyrs, the early reformers, the the people who even led up into the Reformation, men like William Tyndale and Jan Hus and John Rogers, these men who were on really the bleeding edge of persecution as we know it today. They knew that they had to stand firm. But not only did they know they had to stand firm, they did. The Spirit empowered them to have the backbone, to stand firm upon the truth. And if you have time, I would encourage you to go find some good biographies of those brothers and listen to them and to be encouraged and to be pressed on by their lives. As John writes, as I read through this, I thought about the practice of our day when perhaps a, a popular teacher may, may struggle at times. And when I say popular, I just mean well-known. I don't necessarily mean that they are fully trustworthy. I just mean that they are indeed popular and well-known, but sometimes they don't always say what we think accords with the Scripture. Sometimes what you'll hear is that we need to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. I think the Apostle John would have no part of that argument because he says, if you even give this person a greeting, you participate in their evil deeds. That is not to say that any teacher will ever be without fault or will not ever say anything that you kind of have to step back and, and wonder if it's true, and maybe they're not even entirely right about something. But we need to be careful about being too quick to just blindly take the good with the bad of somebody. There are so many false teachers in our day. There are so many who would take the mantle of Bible teacher upon themselves, even those who would be called pastors, even those who might look trustworthy for a period, but they go off the rails, and then once they go off the rails, we decide we're just going to, to, to chew the meat and spit out the bones, take the good with the bad. Dear friend, there is no reason to do that. One, because we have the Scriptures, and two, because there are, are countless men both from the past and in our day, who have always stood firm on the truth. So don't chew the meat and spit out the bones. When you find somebody who gives you more than a bone every now and then, just push that person aside. Go find someone who teaches and preaches the truth. So narrowing in on the text, I said that the first point would be the introduction. And so now let's narrow in. We'll just get through, I think, verse 6 this morning. As As we think about this, we need to consider the straightforward nature of John's encouragement and his exhortation. But we also need to understand that he clearly addresses things that are concerning to him, because that's what a good pastor does. That's what a good fellow loving saint does. You encourage, you exhort, but you address things that are concerning. We see that he's loving in his greeting. He gives a practical warning, a pastoral encouragement. But do you also see that John says, I'm going to be careful not to write too much because I want to come and see you and speak to you face to face. And just as a side note, as it relates to this text, We ought to let John be instructive to us in that. Personal relationships are personal because they are personal. Our our encouragement and instruction and exhortation can't always be via text or email or phone call. We need to be able and willing and, and make the time to sit down with one another face to face. Doesn't mean that it's unbiblical not to do so. But the prescription of Scripture is that that should be our primary means of discipleship. Discipleship in general must be personal because it's life-on-life examples of faithful, spirit-filled living. Jesus didn't write a letter to his 12 disciples. They followed him night and day for three years. John says, I've got a lot more to say to you, but I don't want to write it because I want to come and I want to share it with you face to face. So with all of that setting the stage, let's turn our gaze now to verses one through six. And on a whole, we need to see what is John's primary aim, because this really is this week and Lord willing next week is really just one long sermon that's cut off in the middle. So we need to see today, what is John's primary purpose? Why is he writing? And I think we could narrow that down. We could draw that out to say that we must submit to the fact that Jesus divides by truth. He divides by truth, and we must guard against false Christians who seek to unite in truth and in error. We need to guard against those who seek to unite around and in error, and we guard that with the truth. So Christ divides by truth, and we need to guard against false Christians who seek to unite around error. Verses 1 through 6 really set the stage for that, so we'll get into the meat of that statement next time, But, but we really set the stage with John's introduction to this lady. We're going to see a personal greeting, a pastoral encouragement. Practical warning, a principled exhortation, and then John wraps up with a prompt conclusion. So verses 1 through 3, a personal greeting, a personal greeting. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and in love. So we've already defined the who that John is writing to, but John also identifies himself in this personal greeting. He says the elder the presbyteros the shepherd the caretaker the pastor, his writing is one who has shepherding authority, shepherding care over this woman and her children. And as we saw in 1 John, when John would identify his authority often as a fatherly love in 1 John, this was not some type of ego trip. This was John who was entrusted by Christ to care for these sheep, telling these sheep that he loves them that he cares for them, that he wants to tend to them and feed them and protect them and guard them from the wolves. So John begins his personal greeting by reminding this woman of his love for her. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. The first component that we have to note is that this is indeed wrapped up in a biblical love. You you think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that well-known chapter about love. He began there by saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Dear friend, the greatest instruction, the most clear sermon, the boldest and most clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is utterly meaningless and utterly powerless if it's not given with love. If you do not love, you're just like instruments clinging together, making noise. Paul went on in 1 Corinthians 13 to say, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, If I surrender my body to be burned and do not love, it profits me nothing. It's not some romantic, gushy kind of love, but it's the devoted love that John has written of through five chapters of his first epistle. A devoted, sacrificial, selfless love that always seeks what? The best spiritual interest of one another. This is the love that Jesus spoke of, right? On the night before his death, he told his disciples that greater love has no one than this than one laid down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love that John has for the person that he's writing to. It's the kind of love that we must have for one another. Jesus said that the world will know us by this love, and we promote Healthy biblical relationships in the church when we pursue this type of love. We're able to speak into one another's lives like John does so plainly and so clearly when we're also walking in this type of love, when we're pursuing this type of love. It will never be perfect. You will fall short in your love for one another. We will never attain full Christ like love on this side of eternity. But we must be striving. We must be pursuing it. We must be, above all, I think, sacrificial. Because that was the primary mark of how Jesus loves us. Notice that John doesn't only speak of his love. So this applies then to the the whole church. He says, to the lady whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Now, do you see here, John's not offering any type of flattery. He's not trying to build somebody up so he can just go stab them in the back. He's not trying to build them up so he can go talk bad about them to someone else. He's trying to build this woman up because he's going to follow it up with a hard exhortation. He's going to follow this up by pressing this woman to continue to walk in the commands of God to resist those who are false. He's going to give her hard instruction to follow because it's not easy to be hostile to the world because we're outnumbered. There are far less believers than there are those who are deceived or those who hate the Lord. So, Building on this foundation, John says, this is to the one whom I love in, the truth, or love in the truth, and verse 2, this is for the sake of the truth, which abides in us, he says, and will be with us forever. He says, I'm writing to you because I love you, and I'm writing to you for the sake of the truth, because of the truth. The truth compels me to write. And this is a truth that they are mutually submitted to. What does he say? He says it abides in us. It will be with us forever. So why do you exhort someone? Is it because you love them, you love the truth, and you are jointly submitted to the truth of God's word? Does God's standard bound the way that we instruct? Or do we instruct out of personal opinion and for the sake of personal preference? Does our own, do our own opinions uh, cloud the discussion and swerve us off track? Or do we proclaim what is true? It's the truth that bounds John's life. It was the truth that bid him to speak. It was the truth and the prompting of the Holy Spirit that would bid and call him to write. Dear friends, we need to examine ourselves in light of this. We need to think about our own hearts and our own lives in light of what John says here. Do do we exhort one another because we love one another and because we love the truth and because we long for God to be glorified? What drives your life? What drives your relationships? What drives your parenting? Is it love for the truth? Is it desire for the Lord to be glorified by sanctifying saints through the truth, which is the only way through which He will sanctify someone? Or is it something else? It's this love for the truth that must drive us. It's this love for Christ that must drive us because John says the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. Forever. We love the truth, we love in the truth, because as Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of the Lord endures forever. We love the truth and we love in the truth because it's God's word that endures and remains forever. Forever. John says, I love you in the truth. I'm writing for the sake of the truth which abides with us and will be with us forever. And then his personal greeting is then marked by this submission to the Lord, I think, that we see in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It's from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, and it comes, what does he say, in truth and truth love. So what is John's concern here? It's really the same concern, ultimately, that he had going back to 1 John. Do you notice how he highlights Jesus in that phrase, in that verse? From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Again, it's that point about the Gnostics that who, who didn't believe in the true Jesus. John reminds this lady that they have a shared faith because they have a shared Savior. We know that we're called to speak the truth in love. But we're also are reminded here that we speak the truth in love in submission to Christ's authority. Because Christ is the Son of the Father. It's Christ who will give us grace and mercy and peace. Without a mutual confession of Jesus as the true Christ, the true Son of God... There is no Christian unity. We must have that true confession and we must have the lives that are transformed by that truth. And then we have unity. The church, dear friends, has no fellowship with the world. We have no unity with the world. We have no fellowship with darkness. Our basis of unity is a shared confession of Christ. That's it. That is the grounds of what unifies God's people is that we're submitted to the truth of Christ. And that gets to the heart of John's purpose in this letter. He's writing to encourage this woman to remain separate from the world. He would say that there are many deceivers. There are many antichrists in the world, and we must be on guard against them. We must fight against them. We must not have anything to do with those who are false. Yes, that's a hard statement. That's a hard line to draw. Dear friend, deceivers act in deception. Deceivers attempt to deceive. Deceivers desire is to lead the faithful astray and into sin. And if that is their desire, we must take a hard stand. That doesn't mean we don't proclaim the truth when we have an opportunity. But what fellowship has light with darkness? Why would we give our time to unite and to fellowship and to focus our efforts with those who don't believe in Christ? Just to draw out one brief and clear, I think, application in light of this whole epistle, really, John begins with this exhortation, this call to love. But this exhortation and this love we see is not at the expense of the truth. This mutual love, this unity in Christ that John writes about is because of the truth. J.C. Ryle famously said, Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of the truth on the altar of peace. I think we could take and apply that same idea here and say let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of the truth on the altar of unity. We don't set the truth aside just so we can have some fake, unbiblical unity. Rather, we stand upon the truth, and yet let that truth unite us. Let Christ unite all who are His. So we've seen the personal greeting, and next I want to consider this pastoral encouragement. A pastoral encouragement, verse 4 through verse 6. John said, I was very glad, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received the commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have heard from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now, some will take verse 4 and lump it into the the introduction to the greeting in verse 3. But I think the paragraph division at verse 4 is also plausible and helpful. And what we see here is that John is offering this encouragement to press this woman forward, and and he begins by saying, I was glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. But he didn't just say, I was glad. He said, I was very glad. I was exceedingly joyful to hear of your children walking in the truth. In 3 John, verse 4, he writes to Gaius, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. This is the heart, dear friends, of a pastor and shepherd. His great joy, his greatest joy on this side of eternity is to see those entrusted to him by the Lord walking in and according to the truth. Uh, a couple of Fridays ago, Clark and Ben and I, as we were working through his elder examination, we talked about Hebrews 13, 17, where the author there talks about how the church is to obey and to submit to its leader. And that's a challenging thing to consider. But this is the ultimate safeguard to understand and to apply that idea of the church submitting to and obeying its leaders. It's because the leaders of the church should have this heart of a pastor that they have no greater joy than to see their children in the faith Walking in the truth. If that is the heart of a pastor, there will never be spiritual abuse because the goal is truth. The goal is God's glory. The goal is the sanctification of the saints. And that is the ultimate safeguard against spiritual abuse. But let's also understand that this applies to every single saint. This is not a joy that just those who are called to the eldership or just those who are called to be deacons or just those who are leaders in the church ought to have. No, every saint should have a deep and abiding joy when they see or hear of another saint walking and prospering in the faith. Whether it's in your local church or elsewhere, Dear friend, you ought to rejoice when you hear of someone being sanctified, because when the saints are sanctified, God is glorified. Our great goal is not just that God is glorified in us, but that God is glorified in all the earth. And so if you desire for God to be glorified in all things, you must have a deep desire for every saint to be conformed to Christ. And when they are, then you should be overflowing with joy. Think introspectively here. Let's each ask ask this question personally of ourselves. Do I rejoice to hear of another saint's maturity, their growth and godliness? Sometimes is there that nagging jealousy, that nagging envy, that monster of pride, Lurking underneath the surface, where maybe you are joyful, but you're also kind of reserved because you're thinking, I want to be thought of well too. Dear friend, you might think, hey, that's, that's a long leap between joyful and this monster of pride. But let me tell you, dear friend, that's not a leap because you're either at one end or the other. Because if you're anywhere in between, you've got that pride remaining. You've got that self-centeredness remaining. You've got that selfish ambition remaining. And let me tell you, we all still have that. We all must kill that sin each and every day. We need to know the flesh that we fight against. The flesh desires to be first and highest and be thought of as the best, and we must kill that. Dear friend, rejoice when you hear of a fellow saint growing in the faith. John MacArthur wrote, and I think probably preached about verse 4. He tied it into the greeting, but I think his statement is helpful either way. He said, this brief letter opens with a ringing call for Christians to live consistently with the truth they believe. And continue, the only basis for unity in the church is the truth of God's word that indwells, blesses, and controls the lives of individual believers. That's what John encourages. That's what John is encouraged by. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. I was very glad to find some of your children being controlled by the word, through the spirit, because they are alive in Christ. Arthur then said, and I'm just relying on this because I thought this was an interesting take and kind of saw how it fit in once I read it. He said, it's only those Christians and those churches who are firmly planted on the solid foundation of the truth who will be able to withstand the storms of persecution and temptation. And so in that, you're thinking, okay, where's he going with this? So now let me start over and read it and finish his statement because then it all comes together. It's only those Christians and those churches who are firmly planted on the solid foundation of the truth, who will be able to withstand the storms of persecution and temptation and false doctrine that constantly assail them. That's what John is writing about in this letter. This woman and all the churches of the Lord standing firm amidst the persecution of false doctrine that we resist and that we remain. Thomas Brooks said, false teachers are notable in casting dirt and scorn and reproach upon the persons and the names and the credits of Christ's most faithful ambassadors. That's what false teachers do. They they cast the the true and faithful ambassadors of Christ in a bad and negative light, And, and that is a worldly attack. That is a form of persecution. And the only churches, the only Christians who will remain and stand firm are those who are firmly planted upon the sure foundation of the word. We must walk according to the commandments we've received from the Lord, to love, to obey, to resist the world, and to be pure in heart. John's encouragement doesn't stop at verse 4. He goes on, he says, now I ask you, lady, not as though I we're writing you the, a new commandment, but one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And The idea there is that she continues to walk in it. So again, he's not saying you need to turn from falsehood and walk in the truth. He's saying you need to continue walking in the truth. That's why this is an encouragement. You can encourage a fellow saint even when you're correcting them, by telling them to continue on, to continue walking, to continue striving. And really, this is an urging and a prompting. When, when verse 5 says, now I ask you, lady, the original Greek is much more forceful than just saying, would you please keep walking in the truth? No, he's urging, exhorting, pleading with, beseeching, petitioning this woman to continue walking in the truth. That's where we get the idea that she was struggling here, that he's offering a, a corrective statement because he's not just asking nicely, but he's pressing her onward. That ought to mark how we interact with one another. It ought to be marked by this love and this uplifting encouragement, but we ought to press one another to to go to war, to stand firm, to remain in the truth. And, And so John is about to give this clear warning about not even showing hospitality, not even giving a greeting to false teachers and false converts, what does John say before he gets to that warning? He says, Lady, I ask and urge you to remain in the truth, to continue walking in the command to love one another. Dear friend, do you realize that proper biblical brotherly love adds weight to our rejection of worldly people? You know, if we just walk around as rude and unrelational, uninvested people, when we don't invest in the world, it's really meaningless because you're not rejecting something, you just have a bad personality, and you're not very kind. But when we love one another, but when we then stand firmly against those who are false, we show that we love Christ. It's like church discipline. You can't practice church discipline if you don't practice a biblical church membership. And church membership is meaningless if you don't practice biblical church discipline. They go hand in hand. So it is with our love for one another and our resistance to the world. John says that you need to walk in love last few minutes I have this morning just briefly hit on that because we've talked about it a lot throughout 1 John. But, dear friends, when these things come up in Scripture, we still need to give attention. We don't just need to brush by them because we think, hey, I got that in the first epistle. Just very briefly. Verse 5, that we love one another. In verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to His commandment. Do you see that link? We love one another, and this is love. He's not saying that this is your love for the Lord. He's saying this is how you love one another. You walk in submission to God's commands. If you want to properly love a fellow saint, it starts with personal righteousness. You can't love one another if you don't walk with the Lord. Husbands cannot love their wives as Christ loved the church if they're not walking in Christ. Parents, we cannot love our children if we ourselves are not growing in the Lord. You can't give a wise, discerning exhortation to a fellow saint if you're not filled with the wisdom and the discernment of the Holy Spirit and submission to the truth. This is love for one another, that you obey and keep His commandments. Just a reminder, 1 John 5, verse 3, John said, This is love. This is love of God, which leads to the love of one another, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That's the transforming work of the gospel that we must exemplify to one another the transforming work of the gospel that we must exemplify to our children, and it's the transformation of the gospel that we must call for in one another. It's not just that you do what the Bible says, but that you do it joyfully, that your heart's desire is to do what the Lord has commanded. And this, friends, is why we must reject every form and every fashion of love that comes from the world world knows nothing of loving god and therefore cannot give us any insight as to how to love one another that statement be dividing yes it will Will it set the church apart from the world yes it should i would hope it does will it make you popular in the world no you will be hated you will be called all kinds of negative things and you will be considered to be arrogant. But What's the truth? The truth is that the world can't instruct us how to love because the world does not know love. The world, they are the children of their father, the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. We do not seek to be inclusive. We do not seek to Love in the way that culture tells us to. We don't we want to avoid culturally relevant forms of love. Because the world's love has but one end. Worldly love leads to the increase of fleshly desires. That's what the world wants you to allow. The increase of carnality. Do not listen to the church and the world's form of love. So John says, Lady, I see your children are walking in the truth. I see that you have been walking according to the Lord's commandment, but I ask, I beseech you, I urge you to continue doing the same. Dear friends, why do you think her children were walking in the truth? I think it's because they had a godly mother who brought them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But there's such instruction there that we as parents need to be reminded that we can't neglect our own souls. She gave herself, I believe, to instruct and to raise her children, to teach them to fear God and keep His commandments. Perhaps she had neglected her own soul. All of us, I would especially encourage you mothers who, who spend more time giving of your souls to instruct your children maybe than the fathers do, don't neglect your own soul. Make time to spend with the Lord so that by His grace and through the Spirit, He will grow you. And then out of the overflow of that, and this goes for all of us, out of the overflow of that growth, then we minister to our children, then we minister to to one another. You you don't have anything to minister if the Lord is not filling you up day by day, by day. May we all know the Lord's commands. May we hear his call to be separate from the world to walk in love and to press onward both in love and in truth. In these dark times, truth and love Means we must separate from the world. It will be a stark, plain separation. In verses seven through eleven, the, the body of this letter, John makes that separation very plain. So Lord willing, next week we'll come back and see what what he's building to as he gives as he's given this encouragement to the woman, and he'll come back to warn her and to exhort her and to press her on to to be separate from the world, to practice a biblical division and hostility. So may the Lord write his word on our hearts so that we're conformed to Christ and glorify his name. Let's pray.